All right, everybody. Let's go ahead and get started as people continue to trickle in. That's certainly okay. We're going to continue on in our new series on doctrine of union with Christ. Before we do so, let me pray for us and we will we will jump into things. God, we are thankful to be able to study this doctrine in particular because of how central it is to everything we see about the benefits conferred by Christ, faith, justification. We're thankful to be united with Christ, both in a death and a resurrection like his to come. And we pray that you would help us absorb this material in a way that would be edifying and instructive for our hearts and souls as well as our minds. And so be with us as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Well, again, if you were here last time, uh, we started a new series on the doctrine of union with Christ. If you were not here last time, um, well, we still started that series. So there, uh, there we are. And uh, we kind of did a high-level overview of what we were going to be discussing throughout the course of the series. We asked about, you know, what do you know about union with Christ? And we had a, had a good conversation about the doctrine and uh, I wanted to kind of whet everyone's appetite for the rest of this series. Uh, most of our time in this series is going to be spent in what would probably be called systematic theology. Systematic theology as opposed to, say, um, a historical theology, what the church has believed about a doctrine throughout church history, or biblical theology, um, which is uh, on on. Well, there are some contested understandings, but what, the way I'm using the phrase is how particular themes develop over the narratival story of Scripture from the garden to glory. That would be kind of biblical theology. Systematic theology would be something more like took, taking a particular topic and saying, what does the Bible say about whatever? And how should we live in light of that today as Christians? That would be kind of a very simple understanding of systematic theology. And that is what most of the union with Christ discussion, uh, that, that is the realm within which most of the union with Christ discussion is situated. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. What we are going to find is that part of union with Christ, and you're just going to have to accept this for now, and then I'll, it'll, become more, it'll become more plain later. But part of union with Christ is not just becoming identified with the benefits that Christ bestows on us, but it means becoming identified with his, with his story as well. With the story of Christ and the story that he inhabits. Because, of course, Christ comes within a story that God is working and that unfolds in the Old Testament and then, and then in the New. And so Christ does not come in a vacuum and part of union with Christ is that our individual narrative, the narrative of Tyler Krug and Hunter Forsyth and Susan Garland, is that our personal narratives become intertwined in one sense with, with his. But if that's the case, then we kind of have to understand the narratival portion of Christ. And that's, uh, that is to say, how does Christ fit into the story? What... Uh, what more than just abstract properties and promises and benefits that we get from Christ is there to say in terms of us identifying with him? Let me give you an example. I always risk the Lord of the Rings uh, examples. I always say something wrong about them, but this, this one I feel like is a winner, okay? 
So imagine someone, imagine the difference between um, benefiting from the effects of Frodo Baggins uh, destroying the ring, you know, trekking there into Mordor and, and throwing the ring into the fire of Mount Doom to destroy it. And so you're someone, you're a denizen of Middle Earth, right? And you, you, uh, hey, you, you really benefit from that work. You know, you didn't do it yourself. Someone else did it for you, and there are, there are some tremendous benefits for you. That's one thing over here. But imagine over here um, understanding yourself in some real sense to have actually participated in those things yourself. Right? It's not just that I'm someone back in the Shire who benefited from Frodo, um, but I do, I, that is true. But imagine the further understanding of I actually part of, and there's some sense in which I've trekked and I, I get credited for what Frodo did. I'm actually identified in some sense that doesn't compromise who I am as a person. I'm still, you know, my, I, myself. But in some real sense, I have participated in what Frodo actually did. I'm suggesting that one, just the benefits only view is like, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful. But it doesn't have a ton of implications for life after the destruction of the ring. Life in the Shire as ordinary. Whereas after that happening, coming to understand yourself as someone who has in fact, in some sense, participated in the story of Frodo actually has implications uh, for how you would live there the rest of your life. And what I'm suggesting is that in the case of union with Christ, there's one thing to say, understand union with Christ as a collection of benefits. We're going to spend a ton of time on that. But there's another part of union with Christ, participation, and we need to understand who Christ is in light of the story that he finds himself in, the story that he is born into to the Virgin Mary. And so we are going to fly high last time, uh, this time, excuse me, like last time. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a crash course in just kind of the story of the Old Testament as it leads up to Jesus. The next time we will look at how the New Testament, this Messiah, Jesus, fulfills the story of the Old Testament. Then we'll be able to understand the full orbness of Jesus that we have union with. And then the rest of our time will be spent in systematic theology talking about benefits. Okay, but you can imagine that coming to understand yourself as participating in Christ, if you understand the, the narratival uh, aspect of Christ and who he was, that's going to have a lot implications for our identity as Christians. It's going to have a lot more practical applications than just, I got out of hell. All right. And so, again, I'm going to fly high. I'm going to go quickly. Uh, I would encourage you to not take notes. No, not, do not take notes. Just watch the bullet points up on the screen, and there will be a couple times where we turn to things together as I try to tell the story here uh, up, up to the coming of Christ, and then I'm going to cut us off, and we'll do the rest of that next time. Okay? That's the plan. That's the plan. Okay, so where does it start? The mission. Did I do the thing? Did I put this out of order? Hold on. Did I already go to a slide? Oh, Tyler, please no. Hold on. Oh, here we go. Hold on. I always mess up my notes. I'm sorry, y'all. Oh, here we go. Okay, I just didn't have this particular one. Okay, I cut off one bullet point. Don't look at that. Here we go. Bullet point zero, which is not up there, says Adam and the image. 
Adam and the image. God creates. God creates. He creates effortlessly, and everything that was created was created by him. And then as the crown of the creation, he creates man and woman. He forms a man named Adam, and critically, he forms Adam outside of the garden. Man is not native to the presence of God, even before sin. He forms Adam outside of the garden, and then he plants a garden in a place called Eden. The garden is not Eden. Eden is the land. There is a garden that the Lord plants in Eden, and then God takes the man from outside and puts places him into the garden. All of that is rich with symbolism. And then what he says is, I'm, he gives them a commission, this man, this woman, to bear fruit and multiply and to rule and subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over everything that creeps on the ground, etc. And then Adam begins to accomplish this mission of ruling and having dominion by naming the animals, which would be associated with authority. And then after he give, he give after that, he has given a partner that is fit for him to actually accomplish the mission of bearing fruit and multiplying and rule, ruling and subduing. So Eve, it says, is given a helper. A helper kind of sounds like an administrative assistant that you can kind of do without. It's just more inconvenient for you. But that's not the case. The Ezra, the, the, the sense there is that this is someone who is indispensable to the mission indispensable to the mission to be accomplished, also made in the same image. Adam names his wife Eve in a similar manner to which he named the animals. This idea that there is authority or relationship between the husband and the wife goes all the way back to the garden. They are to bear fruit and to multiply. And what's important to remember is that the whole earth was not the same as the garden or the same as Eden. Um, it was a, again, I mentioned that you have Eden and then you have the garden that was planted in it. And the commission is to rule and subdue, and, and something like this. Make see 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 this garden here, right? You see this garden. Go make everything look like this. Go make everything look like this. Okay, rule and subdue. In other words, there, there's there's things that needed to be ruled and subdued. It had to, taken dominion over, and that was part of the commission. That's where this idea of the image of God comes in. Now, there is a lot of talk about what the image is exactly, with there being kind of two emphases. Uh, there's, people emphasize two things, the functional aspect of the image of God, the ontological aspect of the image of God. Very briefly, uh, the functional aspect of the image of God is what it means to be in God's image is to be designed to do a particular thing. So the idea of an image in the ancient Near East when used of kings is that images of a particular uh, god or even a king in a certain area were kind of vice regents. They represented the king in that area or they represented a god on earth in the case of representing a god. That's what it would be to be in the image of a particular god. And so if that context informs what the image of God is in Scripture, and it almost certainly does, then you have something like Adam and Eve being God's representatives to rule, and like God rules and has dominion. And so Adam and Eve on earth are God's representatives, his images to bear, they're kind of his vice regents on earth to accomplish what he's commanded them. That's kind of the functional aspect of it. That is certainly there. That is certainly there. Nevertheless, it does remain highly plausible that there is something about the image that is not just functional about the mission to which we've been assigned, but something about us that makes us able to even accomplish the mission. Moral sensibility, the ability to reason, make decisions, uh, have desires, 
uh, things like that. And in that, and in that sense, that sets us apart from the animal and the plant kingdoms that were also created, right? Those particular things that human beings who are image bearers who have this commission, we have this in our makeup. We have volition and we have the ability to think through consequences and we have moral awareness that enable us to accomplish this mission that a plant and animal kingdom, uh, the, 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 that species in the plant and animal kingdom simply do not have. Okay, so that's the setup. That's the setup, right? Um, the, the successful culmination of the mission, presumably, okay, presumably, I don't have time to camp out on this, but presumably the successful mission here would result in the whole world being ruled and subdued over. So there would be multiplying happening. There would be many, many offspring. The world would be transformed to look like this Edenic paradise. And many theologians, particularly Reformed theologians, believe that if this was carried out and successfully, that eventually, um, they, on the basis of some, some, some of the stuff in Genesis 1 through 3, but also some other texts, that there would be kind of a locked-in state of blessedness, like kind of Adam's in a probationary period. It seems like he could have obeyed, he could have sinned, and unfortunately we know which one happened, but that had he completed the mission, that we would have something like, you might think, what we are looking forward to because of the second Adam. In other words, you would think that if the first Adam had been faithful, it would have resulted in something similar to what the second Adam will guarantee us. That's kind of that's kind of the idea. We don't have time, ton of time to comp camp out on that. But because of this, we get this very fine distinction between eschatological potential or eschatological potential, if you don't want to be mistaken for another word there, and redemptive eschatological, okay? So eschatological potential means in what we have in Eden, it could have been something like the culmination of all things had there been obedience. That's the idea. Had there been obedience, this wasn't the end, though. It's not like some people characterize the consummation of all things as a return to Eden. That's just simply not true. The consummation of all things will be much greater than Eden. It will not be taking a trip back to the beginning. It will be something that far surpasses Eden. And so there was potential in Eden to have this escalated, final, uh, consumed, consummated state uh, of uh, having accomplished the mission, but it didn't happen redemptive eschatological position is God is working to accomplish this. God is working in redemption to accomplish the consummation of all things and making everything bad untrue as it's been said. Or Actually, that's not how it's been said. What is it? I, it's so, I know the saying so well that I can't remember how it's said. What is it? Sad, untrue? Making everything sad, untrue. Yes, thank you, thank you. Okay? The garden itself is very clearly a kind of arboreal, plant-based, like, right, garden, uh, temple. It is, remember, you have the same author on, on traditional understanding of the Pentateuch writing Genesis and, uh, of course, the rest of the, the, the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the, of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, and it, the, the garden is clearly pictured as a kind of temple in which Adam operates as this priest king. He's ruling a regal kind of a task. He is naming, which is an exercise of authority over, including naming his own wife. But he also uh, does things that is explicitly described with, by the priestly language that would come to describe the priests 
later as they worked in the tabernacle and then the temple. Language like working and keeping, those verbs, there's a language of priests in the tabernacle and the temple. The presence of God in the garden is very similar to the presence of God in the temple, particularly in the Holy of Holies. When we fast forward to the tabernacle and the temple, we get all of these Edenic decorations. If you go back and look at the decorations and, and what's supposed to be on the the drapes, and, and, and I mean, it's everywhere. You get stuff that is floral. You get stuff that is out of a garden. Um, in fact, the cherubim on there's the holy of holy. There's the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, where the presence of God was. And on that veil, does anyone remember what is there? It's a cherubim. It's a cherubim. It's a cherubim guarding the presence of God, just like the cherubim guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden after the fall. Okay? You cannot go... This, this is a guarded place. The presence of God lost is a guarded place. And finally, the exit of the temple and the tabernacle was always to the east. And that is exactly where, the pres where uh, Adam and Eve went out from. They went out to the east. So the people were constantly reminded, and that's in Genesis 3.24. In fact, let me just read it real quick to you. This is one thing that's definitely worth seeing. If you want to open up with me to Genesis 3, we'll, we'll talk about the curse in just one second. But um, it does say, uh, he drove uh, out, the, in verse 3, uh, 24 of chapter 3, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The temple, the tabernacle, was a constant reminder to the people that they were east of Eden. They were east of Eden. Okay? And so you have this imagery of temple and God dwelling and responsibility all right there in the garden. And the same author having authored them both, using the same language to describe priests and kings as, it is, as he uses particularly to describe Adam. And then unfortunately you have this colossal failure to actually do what they are told. The mission is thwarted by this deceptive serpent. And despite Eve being deceived, Adam is the one held responsible. There's quite a bit of discussion about what was the first sin. What was the first sin? Um, was it Adam not uh, teaching his wife appropriately? Because when the serpent asks Eve what the Lord said, she actually responds with the wrong answer. She doesn't get it quite right. Okay, so was Eve, did Eve make something up? Did Adam, was she not properly instructive, uh, instructed? Was Adam just standing there when it happened? It sure seems like it's, it's kind of pictured like that. It's not clear, but we have the fall. We have the fall. At, the one, way or, uh, at one level or another, the first sin was disobeying God, just like the second sin and the third sin and the fourth sin. You know? Which specific kind? Well, it, it's not entirely Clear, but in disobeying and eating of the forbidden fruit, we have the curse. And the curse comes to us, of course, in Genesis chapter 3. Eve, um, well, before I say that, let me just say God curses the serpent who has deceived them. Um, but then there, he curses the ground. He curses the, curses the ground, he curses the woman. Uh, multiplying her pain and childbearing, curses the ground in terms of eating, uh, uh, eating in terms of working it, and that's when he's talking to Adam and specifically. Um, but he makes a promise after cursing the serpent and then the cursing the man and the woman in terms of multiplying pain and childbearing and making the ground 
difficult to labor against. There's this promise, and it's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospels. Many of you have heard this in Genesis 3.15, that there was a promise that there is a seed that's going to come from the woman. There was a seed that was going to come from the woman. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We know from the New Testament that this ultimately finds its fulfillment in the person Jesus. However, it is extremely likely that Eve be thought that she was giving birth to Jesus. I mean, after all, if someone said, "You're gonna, uh, uh, you are going to, uh, you're going to have an off, you're going to have some offspring, and they're going to crush the head of the serpent," you would think, perhaps, if you're a woman and you got pregnant and you're about to bear a child, like, well, here they are. Here's my offspring. And so that's how the story progresses. Here's the hope. Adam and Eve have the hope of someone who's going to crush the head of the, of the serpent. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen. We have, as the Bible narrates it, we have uh, Cain and his brother Abel. And Cain, the older brother, right? Um, well, he kills Abel, doesn't he? murders him. We talked about that last time. And apparently, that's not the offspring. Apparently, that is not the seed of the woman. Must be another seed, because that wasn't it. Well, wasn't Abel either, because he got killed. So, again, what is going to happen? Things get much worse. So, so much worse, in fact, that um, God decides to wipe everyone out and recreate because that's what Genesis 6, that's what the flood is, recreation. Recreation. God says, he takes starts over with the world's most righteous man, Noah, and said, things are so wicked on the earth, I'm going to wipe everyone out. I'm going to save Noah and your family, build an ark. I'm sending a flood as an expression of wrath. I'm wiping everyone else out. I'm starting over with you. This is it. Noah must be the seed, Right? Unfortunately, that's not the case either. Noah, as the narrative very clearly demonstrates, is not the seed. He ends up naked, similar to Adam in his shame, and he ends up drunk by the fruit of the vine, wine, even as Adam and Eve disobeyed by partaking of the fruit of the tree. He ends up drunk and naked in his tent, and things continue to progress again, and again, say progress, <laughs> progress in a negative direction. They begin to get worse and worse again until we get over to Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Now the sin, many of you remember the story of Babel. We're going to build a tower up to the heavens. And certainly the sin of Babel included pride, but it seems like the main part of the, uh, of the problem the, the main problem, excuse me, was that they were failing to obey the commission that had been given to Noah like it had been given to Adam. Noah was told to multiply, bear fruit and multiply. Okay, He, he is not given the, the dominion, and to, he is not told to rule and subdue and have dominion. And I don't have time to explain why that one drops out. I'm going to suggest it has something to do with a marred image that makes that not possible. But... Noah is given the bear fruit and multiply image, and instead of multiplying and filling the earth at the Tower of Babel, everyone's doing the exact opposite. 
They're all gathered together in one place, it says, and they're building this tower up to heaven. They're all huddled together, trying to build upwards. And God, the language is so funny in the Hebrew, he says, and God, let's go down there. And so he's like looking at their cute little tower. And we're going to go down there and confuse their language. And he confuses their language. They can't finish the building project. Because if you can't, you know, tell the person next to you to pass a brick, because none of you speak the same language, you can't build the tower. And so that's exactly what happens. He goes down and confuses the language of the people and spreads them all across the face of the earth so that in Genesis chapter 12, when we, get a, we find a man named, at that point, Abram, there are already people spread out. Okay? So Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which I just tried to narrate, and I do understand it was quick, is central, very, very central for understanding everything else, certainly including what Christ comes to do. Okay? And we see in Genesis 12 a remarkable shift. Instead of God saying, bear fruit and multiply, fill the earth, rule and have dominion. Instead, God says, I am actually going to accomplish this. It goes from commanding to promising. It goes from commanding him to do this, saying, you're clearly not going to do this. We don't need more at-bats here. No more at-bats. I am the one who is going to do this. And so, if you have your script, uh, copy of the Scripture open, you could read with me in Genesis chapter 12, just 1 through 3, a central passage for the beginning of um, the redemption of the Jewish people, Israel, and by extension, you and I. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth that I've just dispersed will be blessed. That's the promise. Very different sound than commissioned to Adam in the garden. Very different sound than what he says to Noah after the floodwaters settle and they emerge. This covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is confirmed. This is a covenant of circumcision. We get this in chapter 15. We get this in chapter 17. And God would begin to make good on His promise. So much so that if you fast forward to Exodus chapter 1, we read this. The people of Israel... After Joseph died here, it's talking about in, in Exodus 1-7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Oh, now it sounds like we're getting somewhere. It sounds like we're getting somewhere because God has promised to do something and it's inter we don't have time to do it right now, but it's interesting that every time God promises something like offspring, there's some kind of struggle with infertility. It's a picture of God being the one who's going to get it done. Okay? It's a picture. Okay? And you, of course, very famously, Abram and Sarah are like, oh, I'm too old and this and that. And you have this tension of where's the offspring going to come from? Who's going to, where is the, remember, there is a seed coming. There's a seed coming that is going to, to bruise, to, to crush the head of this, this serpent here. How is it going to keep going? Oh, oh I'm, I'm infertile. 
well, what's going to happen? Oh, here we are. And then God continues to progress the story toward the end of redemption. Of course, most of us know the story of Exodus fairly well. There are a variety of plagues that God brings about, including the death of the firstborn. In Exodus 42, 42, in Exodus chapter 4, 22 of note, God describes Israel as his firstborn son. And he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his son go and to serve him. The son theme will reappear in the Old Testament multiple times. And we should remember that Israel then is explicitly referred to, both in Exodus 4 and other places, Israel is explicitly considered the Son of God. It is the Son of God. And the question is, will the Son of God do what they have been commanded to do under the umbrella of what God has promised to do? Will the Son of God do what they have been commanded, will be commanded to do, just one second, under the umbrella of what God has promised to do through them, namely through Abraham? Hosea 11.1 1 is another great example. Out of Egypt, I called my what? Son. Who said it? Yeah. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel is the son of God. We're looking for a faithful son of God. Hmm. Who does that sound like? Uh, I'm not sure. We might have to wait till next time to figure out who will be the faithful son of God. But, but very clearly, we've got promise. We've got covenant. We've got a son of God. We've got the people multiplied uh, because God is getting it done here in Exodus, so much so that the Pharaoh freaks out, like, hey, man, if we don't get this under control, they're going to take over. All these, these, these folks are, are multiplying everywhere. And so they enslave them. They are, of course, led out of Egypt by Moses, the stammering spokesperson, uh, and his brother, Aaron, in the Exodus... They pass through the Red Sea. Of course, the Red Sea swallows up the Egyptians. And we receive at Mount Sinai a covenant. And that all culminates in Israel, what you might say, properly speaking. Properly speaking. It's not as though there was no sense in which there was an Israel before Sinai. That's not true. We just read about it in Exodus 1. But all the people of Israel were fruitful and increased. But it's here at Sinai where they become a covenanted people. It's here at Sinai where they become a covenanted nation as part of the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. Now, this there, there, and, and before you get the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter what? Somebody tell me from Bible class. 20. All right, before we get that, in chapter 19, we get this fascinating little verse, two verses. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Again, all of this is to set up the story of who Jesus is. Just please keep that in mind. All of the themes that I'm trying to emphasize are setting up a story for who Jesus is. You have Israel there at Mount Sinai. God is going to covenant with them and give them a written law, an incredible grace, by the way, because in the ancient Near East, no one else had a revealed law from God, so they were just trying the best they can to have to to, to um, you know 
placate the wrath of these capricious gods? And what do we do? Oh, it's our crops. Oh, it's not raining. The gods are angry. Let's sacrifice some animals, maybe some people. Who knows? There wasn't. How do we live rightly before God? God says, huh, right here. This is how. I'm going to reveal how to live before you. But before that, in chapter, excuse me, verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 19, I want you to listen to what he says. Um, actually, let's look at, start, start at verse 4 of chapter 19. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, that is a remarkable sentence. One of the reasons that's remarkable is because the priesthood Hasn't been instituted yet. Am I right? Exodus 19. We're not there yet. You're nothing about a priest. He says, you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. What is a priest? They would have had an idea what a priest was, and certainly it would be clarified, and it really would be just a more specific version of what they already had in mind. Need some lubrication. Just hold on a second. What did priests do? What did priests do? Someone tell me, what did, what did priests do? Generically. I'm not looking for like a some amazing answer. Just generic. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So a priest was someone who mediated between God and man. Right? And I would say secondarily, you see this particularly in, uh, in Israel, is that it, the priests were responsible for teaching the people uh, and revealing... Uh, God's will, teaching teaching the people the law, God's revealed will. And so, in, so what he says is, listen, what this what this nation, what you are going to be, is a kingdom of priests. You are going to exercise. You are in commission to exercise a priestly function. Okay, you are to stand between God and the nations and mediate that in some sense. You are to say something like, come and see. Come and see what the Lord is doing and show people how to fear God in all nations. You are to, by your actions and law even, teach the nations how to live rightly before God. And, 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 and you see this come to fruition in many cases in Israel when you have, what's the word for it? Does anyone know what's the word for someone in Israel who's not a Jew but is living according to so that's in the New Testament. Yeah, that is that is correct answer. But uh, I'm yeah, that was that was just a poorly worded question. I was looking for someone who's a sojourner with the people of Israel, someone who's a, a sojourner. Yes, who would in one sense be understood back then as a, a version of a, a a proselyte. Yes, that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, but it's someone who is not Jewish, is not a Hebrew, and yet they are. They are participating in a lot of aspects of community life there. 
Israel is to be a kingdom of priests to teach God's revealed will how to live before him and to mediate mediate uh, between the nations and God. Okay? Hold on to that theme. We've got a son of God theme. We've got a priest theme. We've got a king theme. We've got a multiply theme. We've got a rule and dominion theme. All kind of stacking up on top of each other at this point. The people eventually will take the land that's promised to them, um, but they show signs very early on that this Son of God is not going to be the one who crushes the head of the serpent, unfortunately. Um, of course, they get to the edge of the promised land, they all freak out. They send a little spy mission in there. They're like, oh man, these guys are huge. These, we're like little grass. We're going to get crushed. The folks say, let's not do it. There's two fine young men, Joshua and Caleb, who are like, no, let's be faithful. But they get outvoted by the majority who yells louder. And as a result, they were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years until a generation dies. And you get the re-giving of the law, which is what Deuteronomy means, second law, where Moses kind of gives a sermon. It's very sermonic. Um, kind of recasts the law right before they enter the promise the promised land. They take the land, but because of their disobedience, they wouldn't run everyone out of the land. And those people who would remain in the land, every time you read it over and over, you just got to go like, blah, 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 blah. the Jebusites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and all the rest of them, they become a snare to them in the land, and they don't actually drive all of them out. And so what would happen is they would get oppressed, and then God would raise up a judge to deliver the people. And then eventually, this this was the, this is the judges cycles, and this is where you get people like Gideon and Samson, and they weren't really they were really just kind of military leaders that delivered, and there wasn't much else past that. But that would actually lead to the people getting their first king, properly speaking, and that was a guy named Saul. Saul was much much taller and much much larger than everyone else in Israel. That is why he is the one who was supposed to be fighting Goliath in First Samuel seventeen. Okay. The narrative is very clear. It's supposed to be a battle of the two giants. Okay? But it's not. Because Saul is hiding in the luggage. He's not the king who's going to get it done. It's this little shepherd boy, David. Shepherd boy, David, who becomes a king. David is a man after God's own heart. He was covenanted with by God, forever. You'll always have someone to sit on the throne. The, the, the unconditional nature of the covenant made to David, uh, certainly it, we, we, we feel the same weight of the promises that are made to Abraham in it. It is this unconditional promise that there is going to be someone sitting on the Davidic throne. He is a righteous king, but it is unfortunately, as we see very quickly after that covenant, um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where that's given, we see very quickly after that David is not going to be the one either. David himself becomes a murderer and an adulterer, and yet God's favor is not going to ever depart from David because of his promise to him and the covenant that he makes with him. David would have multiple sons, and um, they were all, with the exception of Solomon, who ruled well for a while at least. Um, 
Most of them were unfit to do anything resembling ruling a kingdom, and eventually the kingdom split. You have a kingdom split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and all of the kings, except I believe it's five, were bad. They're all bad kings. Okay, I do like to point out that all the good kings come from the south. I always point that out. But it's, point, it's important because the great king will come from the south too. He'll be the, he is. He's the lion of Judah, not the lion of Ephraim. Okay? The, the, the king who is coming who will crush the head of the serpent is from the south. Judah. Theologically, he's from the south. That's, that is important. Okay? Do what? Yes. It's just kind of like the theological northerner in the Old Testament, though. It doesn't really matter who it is. There is this idea that he is the king from the south. And, and that's exactly what happens. Um, because of their disobedience, what would happen? Eventually, both uh, kingdoms would go into exile, Assyria and Babylon, respectively. And that, despite promises and prophetic warnings, promises and prophetic warnings, but it wouldn't be the last word. Throughout it all, people heard from the mouths of these prophets. They knew that something was coming. Hadn't been faithful yet. No one had ruled and subdued, certainly. No one had been the faithful son of God. They only had a charcoal sketch, but even that was compelling. Listen to this. For example, in Psalm 2 we read, I will tell of the decree, The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And you have to imagine when a Jew is reading that, they're thinking, who on earth is that going to be? Who is that going to be? Who is that describing? What would be the most singularly confusing verse for Jews would come in Psalm 110.1. Yahweh said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Okay? And the fuller... Kind of the unfolding of biblical theology would be something like God the Father said to God the Son. But the Jews did not understand that. And in the New Testament, they don't understand it any better. You're saying, like, well, he gets a, they get stuck on this one. They get, so why did David say? It was Isaiah who promised a time where the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on then a light has shone. For to us, and this is generally considered a Christmas passage, right? which it is in one sense, but for to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's still coming, the people of Israel are being told. It's clearly not yet. Isaiah 11, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek. Of the earth, he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 53, there's coming someone who is going to be a servant that is pictured kind of as Israel. When you go read the servant, the uh, the suffering servant 
passages, it's as though the servant in some cases is described as Israel and in some cases as serving and benefiting Israel. Which one is it? We're going to find that it actually is a version of both. It's a version of both. Even in the exile, we recall Daniel's promises that the people would be restored to the land. Um, but that, that was not the end game. And they do go back to the land in Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's very, very clear that that is not the restoration that everyone was hoping for. It wasn't. Daniel points forward to a later time where he says, there will be a time of trouble in Daniel 12, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting to shame and everlasting contempt. We get to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord thunders forth in Malachi like it does the rest of the book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets. But it's one of the major themes there. It's one of the parting notes of the Old Testament, which is why John the Baptist takes up Malachi's language. The great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's coming! And then... Silence. Radio silence. Just like in Egypt. Hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years pass. No word from the Lord. No king. Where is the promise? What's happened to the Son of God? What about the priests to the nations? What about ruling and subduing? And that sets the stage to understand the person of Jesus with whom we are united. That will be the project next time we are together, and then we will take off with practical implications throughout, and theological implications the rest of this series. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you have chosen to include us as a part of a story instead of segment us off and just give us some benefits, that we adopt new identities in light of union with Christ, that we participate in a story that is far greater than our own, but has far-reaching implications for how we understand ourselves, how we understand the church. And so, Lord, we pray that we would inhabit these promises, that you would help us to think more clearly about who we are in light of them, and that you would be pleased with our actions that flow from that consideration. Bless our time of worship in the following hour. We ask and plead in the name of Jesus. Amen.